Hello and welcome to Autodidacts Anonymous. My name's Matt and I'm an autodidact. My name's Huddo and I too am an autodidact. Oh, you did Good well, Huddo. You nearly forgot your name, but you, you did the rest of it well. <laughs> <laughs> nearly forgot my head this morning too. <laughs> Um, so today we're, to, we're doing chapter 15 of Harari's book, which he's entitled The Marriage of Science and Empire. Um, generally, when you're reading about this kind of stuff in books, it's titled The Age of Exploration. So that's, mm. that's a lot of, of what it's about. But uh, he does it with a, with a different sort of slant than, than what I've seen before. Yes. So he starts off with the tale about the Royal Society, the, the, the Royal Society of Natural Sciences in London. In 1768, they sent an expedition to Tahiti to observe the passing of Venus to help calculate, calculate the distance of the sun from the Earth. Rather than undertake such an expensive expedition to record a solitary astronomical observation, they decided to send along many other scientists as well as military. Along the way, they claimed New Zealand and Australia for Britain, and which spelt the beginning of the conquest of the native peoples of those lands. So the question is, was Cook's, and Captain Cook was the, uh, the leader of this expedition, by the way. Yep. Captain, why do we call him Captain Cook? And why don't we call Christopher Columbus Captain Columbus? Well, it's a very interesting. I've question. often wondered that. I should have put that in the answerable questions. Columbus went on, of course, to uh, be a governor, etc., and then fell out of favour, so who knows? <laughs> okay. Um, so was Cook's expedition a scientific expedition with an accompanying military force, or was it a military expedition with a few scientists tagging along? What's the answer, Hutto? Well, the answer is both. Yeah, uh, that's right. So uh, science and empire became married, and the Europeans were the first to do it during yep. the Age of Exploration. Uh, science and imperialism were inseparable. So why was it Europe that did it, Hutto, and not China or the Ottomans or the, uh, or the Persian Empire or the Mughal Empire in India? Well, yes, and Harari makes the point that it's not because Europe was ahead of the others in any way or had more resources or... Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Um, and I'd never really thought it through. I mean, I've been taught European history yeah. um, and hadn't really seen the full world view. Yes, I've been aware for a while that Europe was a backwater until about 1500. Mm -hmm. Two main contributors to that, actually. One was the Mongols, <laughs> completely destroyed Asia, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and the discovery of the New World. Yeah. Um, that changed everything. Yes. So Europe was traditionally a, a backwater since the days of Rome. Uh, they hadn't, there wasn't a lot going on there, really. Um, the only notable empire they'd really had was Rome. Mm. And even then, the western and northern parts of Europe were... Were, were seen as the Roman backwaters. Correct. The, well, yeah. the north wasn't even part of Rome, wasn't even worth conquering. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the west were pretty much... That's where the hillbillies lived, huh? Yeah. Like the English. <laughs> <laughs> um, the real action was in the Middle East and Asia. So yep. Asia pretty much dominated the world for, for that period of time, a thousand years. Things didn't really start changing until the late 15th century. Um, by 1750, Europe had become masters, not of the world, but of the new world. Yes. So, i.e. the Americas and the oceans. Yeah. Um, although even then, they actually were no match for the great powers of, of Asia. Uh, in 1775, Asia accounted for 80% of the world economy. Uh, I mean, that's a staggering figure that I 
was not really in my head until I read this book. Right, okay, yeah. I was familiar with this because I've read a few world histories over the journey. Um, India and China alone represented two-thirds of global production. Um, the global centre of power didn't shift to Europe until the period 1750 to 1850, which is not long ago. No, and this surprised me too, because, I mean, I sort of thought when Napoleon was doing his thing and fighting Russia, etc., that this was, you know, this was the power centre of the world. Well, in a sense, well, that was was around 1800, right? So that was in the time when Europe started to become the power centre of the world, 1750 to It was was getting there at that stage, but even still, economically, it was not... It was not the big player. No. Um, in that time, though, the Europeans did win a series of wars in Asia. Yeah. They started winning the wars. Yes. And they conquered large parts of Asia. Yes. And uh, once again, this, this emphasises the importance of military. Yeah. Uh, finances finance military, and we'll see a lot more about that in yeah. the next chapter. Yeah. But... When you've got a technological advance or horses or something like that, which give you a military, yeah. a significant military advance, it's, it's huge. Well, Harari's calling it the military scientific industrial complex. Yes. Now, Eisenhower called it the military industrial complex, and you know, let's keep, a, keep an eye out on that. Yeah. But Harari includes science in that as well. Yes. And that's really the part of the book that, that we're in. Um, in 1950, uh, Western Europe... And the US accounted for more than half of global production. So everything turned around there within a space of about uh, 200 years. Yeah. Uh, China had been reduced to 5%. Yeah. See, see, I grew up thinking of India and China as backwaters and just poor places. Yes. But they weren't. They, no. they, they never had traditionally been. They, no. just, they just had a rough time no. there. That's right. I don't know if the Europeans had anything to do with that. And, well, yes. <laughs> Maybe a little. And... Um... The speed of these changes, you know, in a hundred years, you can go from 40% to 5%. Yeah. And in the next hundred years, you can come right back up to 40%, which is what we're starting to see now. Yeah, yeah. So a a new global culture emerged, which is basically European. Yes. So we live in pretty much a global culture now, and it's dominated by European thought and culture. So our dress, like... Uh, our thoughts, our tastes, yeah. our politics, medicine, war, economics, music, languages. Yeah. Even, I thought this was a good point, even the Asian economic miracles such as Japan and Singapore and now China are based on European capitalism, models of production and finance. Yes. So we live in a European world, Hado, at the moment? Uh, we do. And... Even though Europe's not running it anymore, but it's a European base. Correct. Um, but the other thing is one has to look at the points of change, you know. For thousands of years, Asia was the centre. Yeah. The Europeans developed a new model, if you like, mm. which suddenly... A global model. <laughs> See, the Asians were the centre, but still things were separate. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't... See cracks in the existing model, mm. um, which we'll talk about. You know, we'll get onto Homodeus or something at some stage. Okay. But, um, you know, you look at the Japanese economic miracle, mm. which suddenly you know boosted them to the forefront of technology and mm. stuff like that, mm. and then it stalled. Yeah. And you have to understand why it stalled. Mm. 
the European miracle has stalled. Yeah. And I think we're going to see the same thing happen to China and India. We're still looking for the next wave forward. Okay. Anyway, topic oh, for the future. Interesting. So in a nutshell, how did Europe conquer the world? Science. Scientists are given much of the credit. Indeed. Science and technology. And I've put a quote in here from a famous quote. I've, I've known the quote for years, but I don't actually know. I don't, are you familiar with the guy who first made the quote? I'm not, no. Okay, so the quote is, whatever happens, we've got the Maxim gun and they have not. It's interesting because in the book, uh, Harari says, we've got machine guns, they have not, and you've gone back and read yeah. the actual source quote. Yes, because I read the quote that Harari used and I thought, I, don't think, I thought it was Gatling gun, actually. I thought, I reckon that quote's not quite right. Right. Now, I've, I've Googled this and come up with this from, I don't know, wherever, on the yeah. internet, and the internet's never wrong, had I? So I'm going to oh, go with this that's one. that's right, yeah. Absolutely. And it was by a guy called Hilaire Belloc, so I presume he was a Frenchman. I should have done some research on him, but I just presumed you'd do that. <laughs> no, 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 you're, you're our history guru. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was, uh, it's one of the reasons why World War I was a bit of a shock to the Europeans, because they'd been... Uh, beaten up guys with sticks for the last mm. 150 years. That's exactly right. They figured their armies were unstoppable <laughs> until they ran into each other, and then, <laughs> then they just stopped. <laughs> now, it's not just about the machine gun. Um, Harari uh, argues that logistical yes. advances, such as canned food, yeah. railroads, which is a common yeah. example, steamships and medicines, all played an even larger role than the machine gun. We Absolutely. tend to think of the machine gun, don't we? Like we, we went to Africa and we shot everyone, if you like. Yeah. Um, but if we didn't have the medicines to get over malaria and yeah. a couple of the other diseases down there, we, we wouldn't have been able to go there in the first no, place. Gun. I should, when I say we, <laughs> I am a white man, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, communications, an army marches on its stomach, logistics, all this sort of thing, um, absolutely vitally important to military ventures yeah um, and science gave them the whole bang shoot but you know mapping um navigation stuff like this was all essential to yeah. the success of this and a lot of these things that the europeans capitalized on were actually invented in asia oh yes like the compass and the gun and gunpowder yeah. are two for classic examples that uh I mean, Chinese had had for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and the Europeans really capitalised on them during the Age of Exploration. That's right. The, um, the Chinese were not looking to technology for military purposes. No. Um, you know, they just wanted fireworks really uh, during Chinese New Year. Great fireworks, that's right. It's, um, <laughs> which, is, which is more noble than... Uh, celebrate the Emperor's birthday is far more important than yeah. beating up your neighbours. Yeah. So the European military scientific industrial complex took over the world. Um, but why couldn't the Ottomans, Mughals, Persians, or Chinese have taken advantage of these, taken advantage of these advantages <laughs> in the way that the British, French, Russians, and Italians did? So what happened is the Brits were the first to hit the Industrial Revolution, if you like, and start, you know, getting steam-powered, you know, right. engines and so forth. And the other European, European countries just copied them yeah. and then used that technology to, to help them conquer the world, if yes. you like. But the Asian, the Asian powers could have done the same thing. Oh, well, uh, the technology was freely bought. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Look, yeah. In the next chapter where he talks about capitalism, he points out there was the Dutch that got ahead first. Yeah. Um, they took over the Indonesia, etc. Yeah. Um, you didn't even need the full technological panoply to get there. Yeah. 
Um, so, yes, why was it the Dutch and then the British and so on? And he gives all the answers. Yep. Of so, the Chinese and Persians didn't lack the technology, no. to your point. And it could be freely bought anyway, even yeah. if they did. But rather, they lacked the values, myths, judicial apparatus and social political structures that had taken centuries to form and mature in the West. Yeah. And that could not be copied and internalised rapidly by others. Correct. Now, I read that and I thought, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But what about bloody Japan? I mean, that, once, they, once they finally decided to open up, they modernised within about 40 years. Yeah, okay, a couple of things. First of all, this is precisely the problem we have happening in Africa, for example. Um, yeah, decolonise Africa, let mm. them run their own show. Yeah. Yeah, we've just got about a thousand years of... Tribal enmity yeah, or what, what, what have what you. we went through in England before they yeah. finally sorted out constitutional monarchies and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, both America, England and France and Russia, they've all been through civil wars. Yeah, they have. Um, this was seems to be part of the thing. Now, what happened in Japan was an unusual case... They already had the disciplines from the samurai culture. Yeah. But when they lost the war to the Americans, they didn't know what to do. So they basically just said, we'll do everything the American way. Oh, yeah, no, but they modernised during the um, Meiji Restoration right. in the late 19th century when Japan was forced to open up by the Americans, yes. which, is what I, which is what I thought you were referring to. And they were a traditional feudal society. Yes, dominated by shoguns, warlords, and yeah. so forth. And within 40 years, they were wearing, like, European dress and, and uh, you know, firing guns and, and being completely modern. I mean, it's just... And, and, and what they did is they sent envoys into all the European powers. Yes. And essentially just took notes and just copied everything. And, and then they chose the best system for everything. Yes. So they decided to make the British Navy their model for Navy because they yeah. had the best Navy and the German, the Prussian Army for the, yeah. for the Army. And it's like... Extraordinary. One of the most extraordinary things. To modernise a country, if you like, yes. in 40-odd years. Yes. Like, that's... Uh, I mean, Harari's just said that it can't be done. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know what I'm missing, but if, I feel like Japan might have done it. it. Yes, largely true. Japan has a strange culture uh, with... Um, because, in a sense, Japan has always had imperial vision. What Japan lacked was... The only place near them that they could try and conquer was, was stronger. China. That's right. <laughs> so they spent centuries fighting wars with China, trying to get. Yeah, and also they were very. I mean, they had a, a huge isolation policy yes. as well. And and you, and you might be right. They might have just thought, look, we we can only fight China. We're probably not going to beat them, so we'll isolate. Yeah. Um, now, when they suddenly started getting visitors from the west and all the rest of it, and they woke up to the fact that look, these people are are conquering all these islands and stuff we didn't even know about. Mm. Um, we need to wake up here. Mm. Um, but it is interesting because, you know, Harari is basically right. The Shah of Iran, for example, tried to modernise Persia in a hurry. Yeah, yeah. And it didn't work out too well. Well, the Americans have had a pretty hard time trying to instigate a democracy in Iraq in the yes. last 10, 15 years. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Well, it's pretty much impossible, but that's why... I probably need to learn more about the Meiji Restoration because, I mean, maybe there was something. Maybe Japan had some of these values and myths already, yes. but no, no ability to actually implement them, yes. if you like. 
Uh, don't know. I don't know enough about it, but I just I think that's one of the most extraordinary things that's ever happened in world history. Yes, I agree with you. Mm. Um, there's, as I've said before, and will say again, it's the exceptions that really intrigue me. Mm. The, the rules are great, but the exceptions are where you really learn the astonishing things. Yeah, well, that's and, true, actually, because I am interested in this exception. But anyway, we won't get bogged down on it. But no, uh, it's an interesting, good point to interesting raise. topic. We'll we'll answer it in detail at some future podcast. I don't know. We will, of course. Do <laughs> so, what were these different values, mixed judicial apparatus, social political structures that the Europeans had that the others didn't have? And um, it was essentially two things. I, oh. I might just Harari, Harari did, did, of course, use an example here, and we don't want to just copy everything in the book. But what he was basically saying was it was a bit like you had two two rival powers both building tall buildings. Ah, yes. And one of them was just building with you know mud bricks in the usual way and the building was getting taller and taller. Yeah. And the other was building steel and concrete foundations and stuff like the, that. The other one spent years just digging the hole. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, by about... 1650, 1700. They looked like they were equal. They looked similar. Both buildings were about the same height and all the rest yeah. of it. Uh, then, of course, you find that one's on a different foundation yeah. and it just keeps on going yeah. up and up and up. I, I often find it interesting in the, in the modern day when you see a new building go up yeah. and there's a, there's a construction site there for two years. That's right. And they spend 20 months digging a hole. Yes. And then, uh, then a 50-storey building goes up in four months. That's uh, <laughs> So, you know, yeah, I, I've often wondered about that. I'm no engineer, hello, so I don't know much about that. But Harari argues that the, the two differences, the two special things that Europe had about it were A, science, science, yeah. modern scientific methods, and B, capitalism. Yep. Um, so they form the most important legacy of European imperialism to our current post-European 21st century world. So by that I mean Europe's not... Uh, calling the shots anymore, but these two European ideas still are. Yes. Whether it be by the Americans or the Chinese or the Japanese or yes. the Africans or the Australians or New Zealanders dominating the world as always. There's three missions just gone to Mars, of course. One is the Americans, one is the Chinese, and the third is uh, United Arab Emirates. Emirates. Yeah. Right. They've all already left, have they? Yeah. I believe so. Oh, jeez, I'm not up with my space news, so I don't know much about who's going to Mars and who's not, but I didn't know that. Mm. Okay. okay, interesting. So modern science flourished thanks to the empires. Um, it, began, it began as a European specialty, but is today becoming a multi-ethnic enterprise. But what forged the modern bond between modern science and European imperialism? Mm. The key factor in the early modern period was that the scientists and the imperialists shared a similar mindset. Yes. Both of them admitted their ignorance. Yes. Both of them wanted to know what's out there. They didn't know what was out there and they both felt compelled to go out and make new discoveries. And they both sought to become masters of the world. So ambition, curiosity and ambition seem to be European things. Yes. Um, and in the 20th 21st century, we've sort of got this idea that human beings are curious technological creatures. Yeah. Um, and you have to realise that actually, for the most part, we're not. Mm. Um, that is something that has been taught to us. It is not something that is nearly as innate as we tend to think it is today. Yeah. Yep. Um, 
European imperialism was different to previous imperialism because previous empires tended to assume that they already knew everything they needed to know. Yeah. They conquered in pursuit of power and wealth, not knowledge. Yep. Um, so Harari sort of then goes on to say that the Portuguese and Spanish were exploring the coastline of Africa. In the process, they seized coastlines and harbours. Yes. So that was a new way of looking at it to me. I, I didn't realise that they were down there just because they were curious. I thought they were going down there well, <laughs> to seize coastline and harbours. I, I, I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, well, the, the big change in some ways is that it's now recognised that knowledge is power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Especially and, in the information age. I mean, it's something where that's a thought we or a, a, a statement we're used to hearing and yes, thinking about. That's right. But, uh, but it's a, actually a relatively modern statement because, yeah. as I said, you know, the, the old empires went out to gain power but mm. never thought that gaining knowledge was gaining power. No, that's, yeah, it's true. So, Christopher Columbus was an interesting example because he kind of changed the world, but he was still a medieval man in his mindset. Yes. So he, he, for example, he immediately claimed sovereignty of the new lands that he found in America for the Spanish king. Yes. And that, was, that wasn't really a, a typical thing to do. No, that's right. You, you, you <laughs> land on the beach and say, I claim this for the king of Spain. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, the pursuit of knowledge and the conquest of territory became ever more interconnected in the European mindset. Almost every important military expedition that left Europe had scientists on board. Yeah. And, and the example that came to my mind was when Napoleon went and invaded Egypt. Yes. In about 1800. Yeah. Like, what the hell was he invading Egypt for is one question. I think he was just trying to base himself on Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great had invaded Egypt. That's one theory. Um, so... Um, when he went to invade Egypt, it was the whole thing was a bit of a waste of time. But that's when the science of Egyptology became a thing. Yes. Because they discovered all these hieroglyphics and they discovered the Rosetta Stone, which had yep. Egyptian hieroglyphics, I think Babylonian and some other language, might have been Persian or something on there, and they knew how to read one of the languages. Yes. So they were able to use the Rosetta Stone to interpret hieroglyphics. And then Egyptology became a big thing. Yep, that's right. And Harari goes on to talk about... Uh, uh, Deciphering cuneiform by a similar yes, process. Yes, yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, a bit more difficult process, actually. Yes. To... <laughs> yeah, was... When the Rosetta Stone was all just there. <laughs> that's right, yeah, it was not nearly as convenient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so Harari makes a point about drawing empty maps, which apparently was a huge mindset change. So yes. maps of the world traditionally, before the world was really fully discovered, um, Basically, filled in the whole map. They did. You you didn't buy a piece of paper with blank places on it. I mean, nobody sold you a piece of paper. With yeah, so on. that's right. So they draw things there, yeah. and they draw like sea monsters and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. See, even <laughs> if you didn't know what was there, you put something there because nobody's going to pay you good money yeah. for for nothing. Yeah, sorry, my notes were, said the wrong thing. My notes were saying no that they were left out, but that was actually what they were doing. Yeah, that's right. Um, but during the 15th and 16th centuries, the Europeans changed this. Yeah. And this is all during the scientific revolution with the admission of ignorance. Yes. They started leaving these gaps. Yes. And so then a European who's looking at this map, you automatically go, oh, hang on, what's out there then? 
Yeah. Whereas before you'd be like, oh yeah, okay, there's this and then there's a sea monster and all that. And yeah, we know all that stuff. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. What the Bible tells us is out there. That's what's out there. Nobody was interested in what wasn't there. Yeah. Nobody was going to pay money for what wasn't there. And all of a sudden, we were. And I thought the explanation of how come America's called America was rather neat. Yeah, uh, we're going to actually we're actually going to talk about that. Okay, so we're getting to that now. So. The turning point of all this came in 1492 with the Columbus expedition. Now, as I mentioned before, he still had a medieval mindset. So he refused to believe that he discovered an unknown continent that's, because this, that was just too much of a leap for him to bear. That's right. He, he'd actually got his calculations of the Earth's size far too small. Um, and so he thought it was about 14,000 miles, knots, kilometres, like. Inches <laughs> to, to the to the east. Um, he was trying to find a way to India. In point of fact, he was twenty thousand clicks out in yeah. that estimate. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't. He wasn't prepared to admit that. He just figured he'd found some outlying islands off the yeah. east of India. I often wondered about that. I couldn't understand why he wouldn't just admit it. But it turns out that. Europe was going through a great mindset change yep. at the time, and he was a medieval man. And, yes. and a medieval man didn't admit ignorance. Yeah, and this is the same thing we saw with uh, Isaac Newton. You know, even after he's plotted why the planets move the way they do, he's back to Solomon's temple to try and work out why the heavens are laid out the way they are. Yeah, trying to make that leap in mindset is a hugely difficult thing. Columbus couldn't do it. Isaac Newton couldn't do it. Even Einstein was wrestling with it, with, you know, God does not play dice, etc. The great breakthrough is they lay the path for the subsequent people to be brought up yes. recognising this. Yeah, yes. But I'll tell you somebody who did have a modern mindset around that time, Hutto. Yep. And that was Amerigo Vespucci. We're getting better at pronouncing <laughs> this, I think. <laughs> so he did recognise the new world. As being a separate continent. He did, and yes. He, and he did a bit of exploring around there and so forth, and he yeah. published some books back in Europe. And, and um, in 1507, an updated world map was first published, and the map maker who drew this map thought that Vespucci had discovered the, this new place, not yep. Columbus, and yep. so he called it America. Yep, um, which is amazing, really. Um, <laughs> you didn't actually know that? I Look, I'd come across it somewhere, but I must admit... I've forgotten more than I know. Yeah, same, same. Uh, the only stuff I remember is the stuff that I've encountered uh, numerous times. Right. If I encounter something once, I'll know it for a day and then I won't remember it anymore. Um, now, the discovery of America was the foundational event of the scientific revolution. Last, last week, we attributed it all to Newton's uh, theories. Turns out we were wrong. It was the discovery of America. Well, it falls in with the idea of capitalism, isn't it? all about return on investment. America, of course, was the great return on investment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was a mountain in Bolivia that was completely made of silver. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you think the Spanish didn't like the look of that? Oh, look, uh, we'll, do, we'll have more of a look at that in, um, when we get on. And the locals weren't into it. They were like, oh, yeah, it's just another metal. You know? Yeah, we'll, we'll have a, a look at that when we get onto the ascent of money. Um, but, yeah, you know, Isabella of Spain hit the jackpot when... She was about the eighth person Columbus was yeah. pitching his uh, yeah. his idea to, yeah. and she bought into it, and yeah. that was a big return on investment. Yeah. So it was Isabella more than Ferdinand, was it? Yes. Okay. Um, so 
this, the discovery of America taught Europeans to respect present observations and data yes. over the past traditions. Yes. Um, it also kicked off their imperial instincts. Oh, it did that. <laughs> if they wanted to control the new world, they, which they did, yes. they had a lot to learn. Yes. And, and they had a lot to learn as quickly as possible because yep. they had a world to control, Hutto. They had to get out there. Absolutely. Um, the first truly global empires and trade networks were established and global history was transformed and in a sense initiated. So, so yeah, previously we had histories. Yes. But now the world's becoming a globe, a, globe. a single entity for the yes. first time. Yeah. Um, with the discovery of the new world. Unification. Yeah. Yeah. Don't know if we had unification straight off the bat, but we certainly we we were yeah we were thinking in global terms. Yes. Europe, the Europeans were. Um, in fifteen seventeen, Spanish colonists in the Caribbean heard rumours of a powerful empire in Central America, which turned right. out to be the Aztecs. Yeah. Um, by fifteen twenty one, the Aztec Empire had been complete, had conquered and. Completely destroyed. <laughs> You're looking at four years. Yeah. So they heard rumours of this mysterious wealthy people and they had a couple hundred blokes. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you in unanswerable questions, how do you take over an empire with a couple hundred blokes? Yeah, and I'll yeah. expect a detailed answer. Yeah. Um, but within four years, they'd taken it over and they had a vast, and the Spanish had a vast new empire. They had, didn't really have, well, I think they had a small empire. They had the Caribbean Islands. That's probably, and a, and a few things on the west coast of Africa, maybe the Canary Islands or something. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the Spanish were calling the shots now. Um, a few years later, so that was by um, Cortes yep. and his conquistadors. And a few years later, Pizarro uh, borrowed the template and conquered yep. the Incan Empire in South America in the Andes. Yep, did it with even less resources. I'm yeah. <laughs> um, the coming of the Spanish conquistadors to Central America was the equivalent of an alien invasion from outer space. Yes. And I, I, I believe that. I, I've used this in an Australian context, this argument, for a long time. Uh, sometimes white Australians will say, oh, you know, why can't Aboriginals, you know, why can't the natives just, you know, become capitalists and da-da-da-da. And I say to them, look, if aliens came down tomorrow and invaded the world and took it over and kind of, uh, you know, a lot of us died from their diseases and they were, you know, exploited us and murdered us and all the rest of it. You know, would you be like hopping on board with their, their great new system within two or three human lifetimes? Probably not. I, I don't think I would be, although I have put myself down as a... Um, a collaborator. Yeah, a collaborator in the past. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know what I'd do. Look, I think part of the thing that needs to be understood is... <clears throat> The magical old mindset was about things don't change. My father was a farmer, I'm a farmer, my son will be a farmer. Mm. Everything that is known was known. Non-change is what it's about. Now we live in a world of constant change. Yes. But before, before what happened in 1500... Mm. Nobody was expecting empires to fall in four years. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Exactly <laughs> right. It's, uh, so now, yes, we've got a mindset for change. And if aliens came down, we probably would change. Yeah, but, that's a good point. But yeah. it, that's not where the mindset was for thousands of years. Yeah, so in a sense, it was an even greater gap. 
a greater leap for the Aztecs than yes. it would be for us if aliens invaded us. Oh, far bigger. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I think you're probably right. Um, so these aliens that uh, invaded Central America had white skin and a lot of facial hair. Indeed. Um, yes. and, some, a, and an accompanying smell that was... Well, apparently um, white people have been renowned the world over for smelling really bad. Yeah. I don't notice it, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I well, wouldn't. Well, you wash rather more than they did when they yeah, were Yeah, but I, you know, I think we're, I think we're, I don't know, I think, I just think we're the stinkiest race. <laughs> Onboard washing facilities were really not very good. No. And they just got used to not washing. <laughs> yeah. But so, so yeah, but, but that implies that we don't smell today, which I suspect we, we might, but oh, we just don't know. Do. Um, so some of them had hair the colour of the sun. They stink horribly, as you just mentioned. They came in giant floating worlds and rode on the back of huge, scary animals. Indeed. What's going on, Hutto? Well, the Incans and Aztecs didn't work it out in time. You know, they could produce lightning and thunder out of shiny metal sticks. Yeah, that's always a good trick. And they had metal sticks and impenetrable armour, rendering the natives' weapons useless. And they were also able to predict when there was going to be a solar or lunar eclipse. Yeah, which was the realm realm of the gods, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Some thought they were gods or demons or powerful sorcerers. It was completely disorienting, and they just didn't know what to do. They were paralysed, really. Right. And the other thing, of course, is that the Aztec Empire was a very centralised empire. Yes. So Cortes, by contrast, was a modern European man. Exactly. So he he, he knew there was a whole lot of unknowns out. I mean, the Aztecs were just as alien to him, but he was expecting alienness. Whereas the other guys just like, what the hell? Yeah. so he was a man of action, a man of action, and he was and he was motivated to act quickly. He he quickly took their chief Montezuma prisoner and crippled the centrally governed Aztec government. By the time the Aztecs were aware of what was happening, many of them were dying from disease. Yep. And Cortez had persuaded, tricked, slash tricked their subjugated peoples to fight with him against the Aztecs. Yep. The city of Tenochtitlan, which is the, the, the Aztec capital, which is on the side of where Mexico City stands today. Yep. And the Aztec population was reduced by 90% within I mean, a century. That's, those are horrific figures. And of yeah. course, we saw not such dissimilar figures when white man reached Australia. And um, we saw massive casualties um, when they tried to build things like the Panama Canal and things like that too. You know, these diseases are are terrible. We're currently fighting with COVID, but it's not nearly as... um, These mortality rates are nothing like malaria and stuff like that. Um, So Pizarro followed a similar process to conquer the Incans. now, the Asian empires heard that this was going on yep. eventually, but they made no attempt to compete with the Europeans in the, in the settling or exploitation of the Americas. And this is the really interesting thing. Um, they were still building maps which didn't show unknown areas on them. The mindset yeah. thing is, is hugely yeah. important. So they had the resources and capabilities, but they just weren't really interested. No. Which, to our modern mindsets, it seems unbelievable, yes, doesn't it? it does. That's right. <laughs> but if we were living in, in Asia in 1500, we'd think, well, why would you be interested? Yeah, uh, that's yeah. apparently so. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until the 20th century that non-European cultures 
adopted a truly global mindset. I thought, yeah. that, I thought that was interesting. Um, by then, the Europeans had been exploiting the globe uncontested for hundreds of years. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting that the 20th century, which is the, the century that non-European cultures adopted a truly global mindset, happens to coincide with the collapse of European hegemony. It wouldn't be the only reason, right? But it's like anything. I mean, if everyone's going for the same thing, you're not just going to have one mob uh, dominating it forever. Correct. So, you know, European, Europe was probably ruling the world till, say, 1914, or you could argue 1945. Um, but they're not, they're not running it now. No. Um, so I just thought there might have been some connection there, that's all. Yeah, look, there is. And we, we really do need to have a look at Homo Deus, I think, and mm. look at future prognostications based on what's happened in the last hundred years. Yeah. So the first connection between science and empire that we've talked about is essentially motivation, you know, that drive and desire to know what's, what's Good, unknown. old-fashioned greed, but also this hunger for knowledge and power. Well, yeah, well, so we're going to talk about that. So... Um, Curiosity is really the, the thing we first talked about. But the connection between science and empire runs a lot deeper than just that. Yes. Okay. So in practice, building an empire was a scientific project and setting up a scientific discipline was an imperial project. Yeah. I didn't realise they were so interconnected. No, nor did I. I think uh, Harari has, um, has, has made his point once again very clearly. I'd not thought about the interconnection. Yeah. So I'm a, a, a history buff and I, I encountered... Uh, one of the first uh, cities discovered or first civilizations known about is the Mohenjo-Daro um, civilization in India. Yes. Now, I just, I read history books and I read about Mohenjo-Daro and not think anything of it. Right. And I think, okay, well, we've known about this for 3,000 years, 4,000 years. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> we've only known about them since 1922. Yeah. That's... Uh, and, and it was... Not the Mughals, not the Guptas. This was a civilization in northern India. Yes. Not the Mughals, not the Guptas from about 3000 BC or... Oh God, I don't know, actually, but it was a long time ago. But the Mughals, the Guptas, the Mauryans didn't know anything about this no. civilization and didn't particularly care. No. And then the British came in and, and, and conquered India and then they also decide, they discovered this ancient civilization, learned a lot about our past. Yes. And they also deciphered cuneiform script for the first time. Right. Well, since people were using it, I think people well, used I, to use it. Well, I think it probably stopped being... The last person who knew it was... In the first, it, was, it was BC. It was in the first millennium BC. Right. So, which is a fairly... Um, what's the word? Uh, unspecific date. <laughs> Sometime <laughs> yeah. in that thousand years. Well, again, it, it wasn't recorded as being an important event. No. Anymore. Well, you're not going to record the date that you stopped using a particular script, are you? <laughs> exactly right. You're going to be, you're going to be uh, groaning on the ground from a sword wound. And at, at the same time, we have now lost track of how to interpret the kipe, the, uh, the knots system. Yes. So uh, they were using in South America. So you know we. The other one is the ancient Greek uh, script. We can't we can't read it linear linear B or linear A. Right. One of the two. So we can read ancient Greek, but there was a language that the uh, uh, Mycenaeans used that we can't we can't read, which is right. a shame. Yes. Because that's the age of of Homer and the Odyssey, yes. and yes. You know, it'd be nice to be able to read some more of their stuff. Um, the British also pioneered the science of logistics, which discovered the connection. Sorry, not logistics, linguistics. linguistics God, how am yeah. I going, Hutto? <laughs> um, 
And this was big because it discovered a connection between the different language groups. Yes. And the main one being they discovered the Indo-European language. So it turns out that Sanskrit, Old Persian, Latin, Celtic and English are all in the same language family. Yes. That's, that's pretty huge. It's huge. It's, um, and I hadn't, I hadn't understood quite how huge it was. I mean, Latin was a designed language. Um, I hadn't realised it had roots going all the way across to the east as well. Yeah, so the, the, the legendary roots of this language are, are a mob called the Aryans who mm. did it. And I believe they, well, I think it's a bit cloudy there, their yes. past, but I believe they, can't, they originated from somewhere around the Caucasus region. Right. And they expanded into Persia and India. And they also were the people that expanded into Europe as well. Right. And we are, at this stage, getting into a mix of myth, legend and fact. And it's hard to disentangle them. We need to make a few more discoveries. We need to start being able to interpret some more of these languages, Hado. Well, that would be one approach. <laughs> I'm, I'm opting for a time machine myself. <laughs> I'll be too scared to go back. Oh, I'll send others. <laughs> minions! I need minions! <laughs> Um, this, so empire was all about knowledge. The superior knowledge of the Brits allowed them to rule and to retain power more effectively. Yes. Um. Um, now, science also provided the empires with ideological justification. A to wonderful rule. thing. Yeah. Yes. So new knowledge was seen as always good, and the empires that facilitated the discoveries were therefore viewed as progressive and good things. Now, this is an interesting change from the religious viewpoint, mm. which got very upset by new knowledge. You know, Galileo was in great trouble, etc., because new knowledge was upsetting our established order. Yeah. So the idea... We're that, really in the modern world now, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. For the first time yeah. in the book. Yeah. The idea that, you know, a new world, a new knowledge is good unequivocably, yeah. is, is a total change of mindset. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, it comes back to reasons and justifications as well. It's also a mighty good justification to be able to ruthlessly exploit other, other um, societies. Indeed, so we're doing them a favour. <clears throat> yeah, so, so our empires aren't vast instruments of ruthless exploitation, but rather they're altruistic projects conducted for the sake of the non-European races. Of course, we must bring these ignorant savages into our newfound and, and And it hurts us more than it hurts them, Hado. Oh, like, it does. It's, 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 the, it's called the white man's burden for a reason. Indeed, yes, yes, and I was part of it. As, uh, <laughs> and uh, Africa. and, and uh, Harari actually quotes some of um, Kipling's poem, The White Man's Burden, and it's just like, Oh, come on, mate, turn it up. You know, like he's he's going on about, you know, I can't remember the words, but he's going on about how difficult it is for the white man to, you know, civilise these these sort of alien cultures and what a great guy the white man is and so forth. Yeah, now at the same time, your turn it up mindset mm. is something which has come about in your lifetime I agree. in the 20th century. I do agree with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so to give you an example of the contrasting legacy of, of empire, the richest province of India was Bengal, which was conquered in 1764 by the British. Right. And the British went on to implement disastrous and exploitative economic policies. Yes. That resulted in the Great Bengal Famine of 1769 to 1773, resulting in 10 million deaths. Yes. Or a third of the population. Yes. And this was probably the beginning of when India went from a wealthy country to a poor country, I would say. 
uh, well, it played a role. We were busy building canals and things too, and <laughs> it, it wasn't all one-sided, but... Well, that's, it, yeah, that's... It, it is true. I mean, we can now point to South Africa and Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, etc., where having decolonized them and they've taken out their own economies, um, they're doing a disastrous job of it. Mm. Uh, but let's not forget that the British went through their learning curves too, and lots of people suffered from Irish potato famines to Indians. Yeah. So in summary, scientists have provided the Imperial Project with practical knowledge, ideological justification and technological mastery. In return, conquerors provide the scientists with information and protection, support of projects and spreading the scientific way of thinking. It is doubtful that either would have been so successful without the other. Exactly so. So they're, they're very much interconnected. And then the next chapter, we're going to talk about the interconnection between capitalism and, um, yep. and science. And, and thereby, we've got our military, what is it? Military, scientific, industrial complex. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's the end of the chapter. Um, I'm going to get to the unanswerable questions. We might take a 10-second break before we do. But did, was there something you wanted to say about the chapter in conclusion? Like, what did, you, what did you get out of it? No, I'm happy to leave it until we cover capitalism as well. Okay. And then we'll have a look at the, right. the three entwined in the break. All right, sounds good. So I'll see you after the break. Okay, hello. So we're back from our break. And it's your time to shine because it's unanswerable question time. Another futile attempt to score some <laughs> imaginary number of points or something. Yes. <laughs> yes, so I have seven extremely difficult questions for you today. Thank you. And my first one is, they're not that hard actually. <laughs> some of these aren't even unanswerable. <laughs> Are we seeing a return to the mean in terms of the economic world order, i.e. the rise of Asia, particularly India and China? Well, unfortunately, to some extent, this is clearly true. And I say unfortunately because we have to remember what the mean is. The mean is based around war and conquest. Um, now, we have not had a war between major powers for 70 years. If we are returning to the mean, I think it means we are going to see World War Three. So you're saying that as, as more, na more nations get powerful, there's more chance for conflict? We are already seeing a separation between the technology of China mm. with Hawaii and TikTok, etc., mm. and the technology of the USA. We're starting to see the world dividing. The yeah, the internet's government. starting to become segregated. Yes. Well, I mean, it's always been segregated within China, but it's almost like, you know, because Trump's, what's in the news now is Trump's going to try and ban TikTok. Yeah. Now, I believe he's doing it because he's annoyed with the kids for ruining his uh, Tulsa rally. Uh, I think that's the reason, but the justification is some anti-Chinese rhetoric. Yeah. And, uh, okay, so now America's going to keep their internet separate, are they? And then, you know, is Australia and Europe going to do the same thing? Exactly. So, and this is what we're saying. I mean, it was only yesterday, I think, that Australia's largest telco um, 
had a crash because it was being hit by a denial of service attack. And cyber warfare is becoming every very... time every time systems crash, people blame denial of service attacks. Which That's is, another thing. The Australian is... government. Uh, every time they do something online, they have a denial of service attack. It turns out the systems just can't handle <laughs> what they wanted to do. Well, that's another cynical aspect. Too. Um, but look, I think there is no question that we are seeing a new world order. Um, and as I say, historically, unification is achieved by empires having wars and unifying things, mm. um, we have one step left. But the, qu the question, I suppose, is specifically about Asia has traditionally been the wealthy part of the world. Yeah. Do you think we're, get we're getting back to that? Uh, look, Asia still has a huge part of the world's population and a huge part of the world's raw resources. And, you know, they're digging up most of Australia. Australia's exporting minerals left, right and centre to the Asian powerhouse. Um, which puts Australia in a very interesting situation because militarily we're an English-speaking country that's always aligned with America and Great Britain, mm. um, but China is our largest trading partner. Yep. Um, so the short answer is there's definitely a new world order, and it's, but if it's returning to the mean, the mean means we're going to see another war. Okay. My answer is yes. I think Asia is, is in 100 years, Asia will be the wealthiest uh, place in the world again. I don't think we're talking 100-year time frames. Yeah, I, I mean, think. I pulled that number out, yeah. of, out of the air. I think. Look, they're saying that China will be the world's largest economy by 2027. But they won't be the wealthiest nation if you, if you, if you do GDP not, not per on capita. A, not on a per capita yeah. basis. But no. traditionally they were, yeah. right? So but, they're heading back that way. I mean, it might yeah. take them 100 years to get back to that. Well, what I'm saying is you're talking seven years yeah. until they're the world's largest economy. Yeah, but not the world's wealthiest nation. No. Not, but, in fact, a fair way from But it. we're already seeing a... Um, we're already seeing them behaving more and more as a regional hegemon. So I'm sticking with my 100 years. I think in 100 years, wealth... Uh, look, no, not even necessarily China, but somewhere in Asia will, you know... I mean, you even look at the Arabian countries. I mean, so how wealthy some of they are. They're all Asian. I would say in 100 years, Homo sapiens will have been redesigned we will have a single global political entity. Mm. Um, we will probably have had World War Three. Mm. Um, and will you will you be the supreme overlord of this uh, global political entity? Not until I find a way to tack on a few more uh, telomeres to my aging cells and say <laughs> that. <laughs> All right. Um, my next question, and we, we we touched on it while we were while we were talking about it. How the hell did Japan modernise so quickly as opposed to all the other non-European uh, countries to the point where Harari said it's impossible to, to, to modernise so quickly? I don't know. I, and maybe, well, I've called it unanswerable. I don't know the answer to it. I suspect you probably don't know the real answer to it and that's something that I'd like to find out. I agree with you. I think we need to do more research on this. Um, on the one hand, we have the thing which has been oft proven that it's easier to copy than to invent and discover. Yeah. Um, so yeah. We've, we've certainly seen that and we keep seeing that, that um, China, for example, is modernising extremely quickly. Um, but it is clear that you need a mindset. Now, with China, 
they already had the education in place yes. for the the new step forward. All they really needed to do was put some capitalism into the work. Yeah. Um, capitalism Japan, and science. Yes. Now, Japan must have gone through something similar, but we'll do some more research on that. Mm. Um, Japan certainly had a unique headset. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because you look at what they did, and which we spoke about. They mm. went out, sent invoice to all the countries and mm. come in. You know, doing that's not doing that's not necessarily a, a difficult thing to do. What's difficult is who has the mindset to do mm. that to essentially change your entire national culture exactly. in the space of a generation. I mean, there must be something particularly flexible or unique about Japanese culture that I don't understand that that enabled them to do that because no other country's been able to do it. I mean, the Europeans took two thousand years to modernise. Yes, well, fifteen hundred. Uh, we need to have a better understanding of that changeover of the samurai culture at that time. Mm. And samurai culture is quite unique and um, that was an extraordinary period for it when mm. they decided to cut off the traditional Japanese... Yeah. I mean, maybe Tom Cruise had something to do with it. He went over there and fought in their last traditional war. Maybe. Absolutely, the, the, <laughs> the last samurai. It's just... <laughs> yeah, I reckon, I reckon Cruise was behind it. <laughs> <laughs> On that very uneducated date... <laughs> We will leave this question. And, I amuse myself. What can I tell you? And I will accept zero marks for that answer. <laughs> well, I'm going to give you zero for that because I don't think you know the answer, but that's not a criticism. Uh, you know, I, I don't know the answer either. Normally, I like to be critical of your, your ignorance, but only if I actually know better. Right. <laughs> okay. Okay. Why did the Europeans have such an external mindset? So I think Harari's done a good job of explaining this external European mindset, you know, how it came about and why it came about. But for me, it didn't quite get there. Okay. For me, it didn't quite get down to the, you know, he's saying, what's he saying? That we we admitted ignorance. So, you know, we, I, I shouldn't say we, but, you know, I, I feel yeah. I have Euro, European heritage, so that's probably where that comes from. But the Europeans had, they admitted ignorance, they embraced learning new things. Yeah. Why? Why were Europeans like that, whereas other cultures weren't at that time? You know, and I'll give you one theory. It's because European wasn't Europe wasn't homogenous, right? So you had all these competing kingdoms and principalities and nations and so forth, and they were constantly competing and trying to get one up on their very close neighbours, and that would that would feed into a capitalist mindset. Right. And perhaps a progress mindset. We need to be stronger than the guys next to us, otherwise they're going to take us over. Whereas maybe that wasn't as pronounced in other parts of the world. That's just a, an idea that I'll throw in there. Okay, well, clearly capitalism does play part of a role in this, and we're covering that in the next chapter. Oh, so, so they talk about why capitalism comes about in uh, Europe. Absolutely. Oh, okay, so you might know more about this than me, because um, I haven't read that chapter yet. And, uh, you know, return on investment is a wonderful thing. Um the the significance of that blank space on the map yeah, yeah. is really it, that's a lovely depiction of what's going on. Yeah, you know, it's it's a blank space in textbooks, if you like. Yeah. And it's, I talked last week about um, you know in the Harry Potter world, the magical world, there is no research and development department. Nobody invents new spells. It's all about learning the stuff in the Hogwarts library that's already there. Yeah, and the Europeans were like this until 1500. Yes, exactly so. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what 
Galileo and Isaac Newton and these people did was... Americo Vespucci. Yeah, and at the same time, you had voyages of discovery tying in with this. So you but new technology, new navigational abilities and stuff like that is discovering new lands and suddenly the world's a bigger place and the Europeans are willing to buy into this idea of obviously there's riches to be obtained from discovering new things which we never knew about. And it's one of the things I've mentioned before that you know, I have a problem with uh, the idea that the book of Revelation is a prophetic book, at least for our time, because the characteristic of our time is technology and new knowledge and Wikipedia and all the rest of it. There's no mention of that in Revelations because Revelations is absolutely locked into the old format of the magical world. We already know everything. Um, mm. Now, you know, if there's one thing about this world we live in, it's that we don't know everything. We are discovering, we are exploring. Do you think there was something different about the European character that led to these, led to this externally focused mindset? I mean, that, that's what I think uh, Harari didn't identify, and that's what right. I would like to know the answer to. Look, Columbus had a lot of trouble getting anyone to finance his idea of finding a new route to India. But if we think about that, why did he want to do that? Because of geography. The, the Ottomans were in the way yeah. of being able to trade spices Could, and they were too expensive. So, so it's like, so now we're talking economic uh, We are, which, which is why I'm saying once again that a lot of it gets back to capitalism, yeah. a return on investment. He wanted a new route. And... The idea of routes to the east had already been done by Marco Polo and stuff like this. So he wasn't trying to find a new place. He was just find, trying to find a new route mm. to a known place. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, of course, it paid off so spectacularly as an investment. That yeah, that will change your mindset pretty that, quickly. That's exactly right. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe there wasn't anything inherently different about Europeans. Maybe there were circumstances that led to certain events, which then feed into a mindset. Right. Well, maybe that's an explanation. Did, well, again, let's wait till we cover the. I'm looking forward to that chapter. Yes, I struggled a bit with this chapter actually. It wasn't right. my favourite chapter, but okay. I'm glad it's behind me. Okay. I'm looking forward to the capitalism one, right? You're... Because I, I actually, I'm not a, I'm not a, what would the word be? I'm not a. A massive capitalist, really. I mean, I, I live in a capitalist world, but you know, I'm, I'm probably center left when it comes to you know economics right. and politics. Um, but I'm starting to think capitalism might have been right. one of the huge drivers which led to a better life for a lot of people. Well, you're much more broadly read on history than I am. But yes, we've got to get some of your scientific understanding <laughs> as well. So. Okay, so. So, once again, um, I've deferred the answer to that. So, yeah, so you I'm, can defer my points. I'm that. getting quite used to that. <laughs> my next question is, was the discovery of America the foundational event of the scientific revolution? Once again, because America produced such a wonderful return on investment... Yeah, wealth. Yeah, it basically was. Um, if the scientific idea of ignorance and the need to discover knowledge had not tied in at the same time with this expansion 
of you know the world becoming suddenly twice as big. Yeah, they, as they needed people. each other, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yeah, yeah. That's and that's really the point of the chapter. Exactly. Yes. So yeah. there was a coincidence of timing there that was hugely significant. Yeah. Yep. I'm happy with that. I'll give you a point for that one. Um, now, I I would like to. I'm a very ambitious man, Hutto. Mm-hmm. And what I'd like to do, but I don't have. I don't know more than a couple of hundred people, so right. I can probably scratch together a couple of hundred mates right. to to um, join me in my expedition. I'd like to take over an existing world empire and right. be extremely rich and powerful and wealthy. Yeah. How do I go about that? Um, okay, you need to pick on a centralised empire. Oh, okay. Um, so you can't go and conquer Australia with a couple of hundred people because they were too decentralised. I had my eye on it. Right, yeah. But you can con- conquer Central America and South America with a couple of hundred people. Even today? Uh, well, they're not too centralised at present in South America. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, at that time, um, when, what Cortes was doing was he conquered, as we've already mentioned, capture the... Apex, the head, the, the emperor. Yeah. Cut um, off the head. Hold the head as prisoner. Yeah. Make him continue to function that way. Yeah. And then it's divide and rule. Find the enemies of the emperor and get them on your side. Yeah. Um, yeah. Make out that you are simply here to help. Yes. And they'll join you and then you get to imprison them. So what you need to do is set up some kind of diplomatic meeting between you and the head of state That's on behalf right. of your head of state That's the way. who doesn't even know about my existence at That's all, never heard of me. But the, the, but this other guy doesn't know that, That's don't right. I? <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm riding a horse. I mean, yeah. you know, he's got to be impressed just with that. Now, this, of course, is what Hitler didn't do when he invaded Russia. Yeah. He didn't go in there as, we are here to rescue you peasants from the cruel rule of Stalin. If he had, he might have got a whole lot further. Yeah, but that, that would have completely defied what his whole intention well, was. Well, <laughs> exactly right, yeah. Um, now, it was probably only possible at that time with empires of that sort. But what they did in, you know, what they did was despicable. But it's also absolutely amazing. We have so many events in history which you could not write them in a fictional book and have people suspend yeah. disbelief to yeah. that extent. Well, yeah, and you think it's strange to us. Imagine how... If you're going to look at movies, you can have a lot more fun looking at um, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Was to the Aztecs. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's um, real science fiction. But, you know... It did, more recently, we've had Hitler conquering France in six weeks. You know, you spent yeah. four weeks in World War One with the front lines yeah. barely moving an inch, <laughs> and then in World War Two, he just conquers France in six weeks. <laughs> the other thing I was thinking about doing would was carrying a disease that the locals aren't immune to. Yeah, because I figure I can bump off ninety percent of them that way. Yeah, well, absolutely. That's an important thing. Now, mm. Where you? Live, but then, what will I do for labour if they're if they're all Oh, that's as easy. You import them from South Africa where they're already immune. Right. Right? Okay. Oh, okay, I need to be writing these points yeah. down. Uh, uh, and you establish a wonderful slave trade in the process. And, <laughs> and profit from that as well. Yeah, your, your capitalism. I get them both ways. You do, you do. But you, it's a big mistake to leave some of the rump alive. I mean, they've had no end of problems in North America with Native American Indians. They've got <laughs> Australian <laughs> Aborigines. Uh, I'm worried where this is going. <laughs> Maoris and New Zealand. Now, 
what has been done in the so-called name of progress and empire and European imperialism is, of course, absolutely appalling. Um, and it is unjustifiable. Um, and, yeah, Columbus was one of the worst guys imaginable. I mean, you've got guys like Cortes and Pizarro doing terrible things. Yeah. Columbus was so bad, even they demoted him from the government. <laughs> yeah, he spent a bit of time in the Caribbean Islands, I think, yeah. and I think he was pretty ruthless. Oh, absolutely. I don't know much about what he did once he got there. I just know he found the place. I mean, we, we talk about what Hitler did and what Stalin did, and these are appalling things, but they're just built on a legacy of European, yeah. you know? Yeah. Okay, happy with that answer. So I'm gonna, I'll be doing that next week. I might not be here for next week's episode. I might be taking over a... a an empire somewhere. Oh, well, if you want to take over modern ones, I've got different techniques. Different oh, so have a, te- have a technological imba- imbalance oh, as absolutely. well. Oh, You didn't cover that in your answer. Well, the, look, um, well, cyber warfare was not terribly important back then. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> okay. Now, my next question. Is the movie Independence Day a metaphor for European imperialism? I would say absolutely and totally not. Whoa! And... So here's my reasons. Yes. The whole thing about European imperialism is that the cake gets bigger. Yep. We go out and conquer and make a bigger cake for everybody. Yeah. We'll look at this more in the capitalism chapter. The whole point about life before that and the way the Asian empires were all still thinking when Europe was taking over the world was... The pie is the same size. Mm. So if I take something from somebody, that's it. It's about getting a bigger slice of the existing pie. That's right. They've got less and I've got more. The whole thing about Independence Day was these marauding invaders from space didn't build a bigger pie. They just went in and took from other people. This is totally unlike what you would expect any advanced civilization to do. I'm failing to see the difference between that and sort of the Spanish in the Americas. You don't think the Spanish went into the Americas and just exploited all the resources? Uh, yes, that's absolutely true that they did. Um, but that's, in a sense, an act of piracy. I mean, the Spanish went in and, yeah, they, they conquered and gutted and all the rest of it. Um, but we recognise that as being stupid. And when we get to the ascent of money, you will also see why it is basically stupid. It's why Spain did not become yeah superpower, the superpower. Well, they, yeah, they, they they did it on just on sheer wealth for yes. a while, yep. but they didn't have the systems in place to Co- maintain correct. it. Correct. Yeah, I yep. do. I, I am aware of that. Yeah, you're right. It's not a good strategy. Uh, but that that wasn't the question, I suppose. Um, the part of the movie I'm thinking about is when they have when they when the guy for the first time speaks telepathically with the alien that they capture yeah. on Independence Day. Yeah. And he goes, I know their whole plan. They they move from planet to planet and and basically exploit all the resources of that planet and then move on. Yeah. And I and we as audience sit there and go, Oh my God, that's so evil. You know, what is wrong with these evil yeah. aliens? Yeah. And then I think about it in the context of European imperialism, I think, oh, shit, you know, it's pretty hard to justify that yeah, yeah. <laughs> unless you're on the alien side in Independence Day. Yeah. Now, it's not a perfect metaphor, of course, Indeed. because yeah. because 
our purpose, well, the Europeans' purpose in going to the Americas wasn't to kill everybody no. and just take everything and then go back to Europe. They did have a, you know, they had a, more of a plan than that. So it would be equivalent to these aliens independence day keeping us alive. I mean, a lot of us did die anyway from diseases and being shot and what have you, and perhaps working with us to create more wealth, right. you know. But, I mean, 90% of it, yeah. I think, is a good metaphor. Look, the word you're after is exploitation. Yeah. Um, yes, the European conquerors came in and did massive exploitation, and in Independence Day, the aliens were supposedly massive exploiters, to the point that they were only intending to wipe out mankind. They weren't after slaves or anything. They were just going to yeah. take the planet's resources or whatever. What's stupid about it, of course, is that the Earth is, does not have particularly great... Um, wealth to exploit, you can get more from other planets in the solar system and any developed technology doesn't need it anyway, all you really need is energy. Yeah. Um, so, in Independence Day they depicted the aliens as being superbly dumb, which was also the case, for example, in War of the Worlds, Invaders from Mars and all that sort of thing. The aliens have not learned to simply live with the resources of entire solar systems. They have to come and steal from the only planet which is capable of partially defending itself. They're too dumb to have worked out how to protect themselves from computer viruses, right? Yes. And, you know, it, the film is just a nonsense. Mm. Um, it makes for a spectacular big movie with, you know, people blowing things up. Um, but it... And... You know, maybe the scriptwriters thought, you know, exploiters be similar to European exploitation or something, but really it's not a very good metaphor on any level. Yeah. I mean, what I found interesting, I suppose, is you identify with the protagonists. In the, in the case of that movie, the protagonists were the, were the humans, and I suppose as a European... In the case of European imperialism, the protagonists are the Europeans, which True. is kind of the opposite side of the dice. Yeah. And uh, we have these flexible minds, Hutto, that allow us to justify either side. Where, you know, the aliens are supposedly coming to save all other species from this terrible rapist creature, mankind, that's killing the world. Right. Um, so, yeah, we could have some fun talking about that one. Oh, I haven't seen that movie, so I'll have to put that on my uh, Netflix list. Okay. My last question, Hutto. Has racism been replaced by culturism? Harari makes this uh, makes this point in he the does. course of the chapter. Yes, and I agree with it. Right, and I've noticed it in my own life actually uh, in various ways. But I'm interested to see what you think. Right, um, I'm not disputing what Harari said, but partially what he's saying, I think, is that we're using a veneer of culturalism um, to continue, in a sense, expressing racism. If you look at the Nazis, uh, Germany, the fascists were unquestionably racist there. Yep. Um, but Germany's big problem was, you know, they persecuted the Jews. Now, one of the things which was found about the Jews is the Jews were not another race. Yeah. Despite some artificial science, which once again turned out to be invalid, they were not able to tell a Jew on sight mm. because they looked like everyone else. They'd been yeah. German Jews for years. They spoke German like everyone else. Yeah, they had a lot of European blood in them. Exactly so. The French Jews spoke French like every other. So they couldn't tell Jews on sight. What they were complaining about was that they had their own culture. Mm. 
You could also argue why the genocide of the Jews is so abhorrent uh, in, in today's mind, mindset, because it was white on white yes. genocide. Yes, well, that's, that's an, a very valid point to make, I think. Yeah. Um, now, all of these isms are mankind's great problem, and you can even include in there things like mysticism and criticism and, and stuff like that, but yet this separation out in between us and themism is a major, major problem for mankind. Mm. And in Europe, yes, we're dealing with it as culturalism as a major issue. In America, I still think, to be honest, what they're dealing with there is more racism than culturalism. They may be putting a cultural... I think Arari did a good it. job of explaining where that American racism came yes. from. It came from a, a very... It came from a real thing, yes. Uh, as opposed to you know some other countries, where like so in ancient Rome and places like that, racism I don't think was really a thing, right? Right. So the American racism no. is is very pronounced, correct? Yeah. Um, in my life, I notice that I quickly, if somebody speaks to me, and I've said this before in a previous yeah. podcast, if someone speaks to me like I'm speaking to you now, so, so I'm connecting with that person, I. Able to notice the colour of their skin within about five seconds. Yes. But if they speak to me in a really strong accent or they're struggling with their English and, you know, they're talking about um, vengeance killings in their home tribe or whatever, right. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you know, what the hell's going on, mate, you know? Yeah. And it's not a, it's not a race thing. I, I've, I've observed that in my own life. Yeah. Race is really just an identifier for culture, Correct. I think. Correct. But and an imperfect identifier. Yes, and look, all of the cultural identifiers, whether we're talking religion or language or dress or appearance or any of these things, they are simply identifiers within the culturalism thing. Yeah. But culture is very, very important. We, we've, in the pre couple of chapters back, we were looking at the Numantians who were fighting the Roman Empire yeah. because they wanted to keep their culture. Yeah. And yep. they were prepared to die to a man yep. rather than bow and conform to Roman culture. Yeah, so you're saying it's not necessarily a new thing. It's it not... perhaps has been the, the, the main thing over the journey. Yep. I think racism has been more prominent in the last 500 years than probably it's ever been with the rise of the, the Europeans and the slave trade. Yeah. Um, I, don't, you know, I don't know that for sure, but my understanding of ancient cultures is they weren't really that racist. Sure, they still didn't like the, the guys over the hill. But they didn't give a shit what they looked like or whatever. Well, okay. <laughs> it's just that they were a different mob. You've got a couple of things to think about. One is, for example, South Africa yeah. definitely looked like racism. Um, it was largely culturalism, but the obvious identifier was race. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about around. the Irish situation as well. I mean, mm. that's been attributed as a religious um, problem. It's got bloody nothing to do with it. It's, it all that all the religion does is identify what team you're on in, in the political debate. Correct. That's, <laughs> ab that's absolutely right. Um, and, and it's a bit the same in Palestine as well. It's not a religious dispute. It's a, it's a dispute over land between two peoples. Exactly so. And you know, language is one of the identifiers. Yes. But that's that's what yep. it is. Um, so again, you've you've got this problem that. Nothing has changed in the history of mankind, basically. Yeah. Um, there's greed drives it, there's difference drives it, but it's all just around us and them. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that's the end of the questions. Out of seven, I'm going to give you 4.22 recurring. Right. Yeah. That's 
as fair as you've ever been. <laughs> yeah, happy with that one, are you? Happy with that mark. Are you writing these down, by the way, and adding them up? Look, my, um, my expectations have moderated a lot. <laughs> you started off trying to get 100%, didn't you? <laughs> I used to think it was possible. I'm actually going to give myself six because I think I answered uh, nearly every question almost perfectly. Right, okay. Yes, uh, that, that too is as, uh, as modest as you usually are. And, and, and as you can tell, this is my favourite part of the podcast. <laughs> but having said that, we have come to the end. And we're going to pitch into capitalism. Capitalism and science. Indeed. On, on the flip-flop. flip-flop. See you then. Yay!